Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I'm your host, Rob Stennett, here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? What's up, Rob? Let's talk about this movie where time has no meaning. We're going to talk about that, and we needed a special guest to help us unpack all this. So we've invited my good friend and Once Upon a Time podcast collaborator, Jason Boyette. Jason, welcome to the show. Rob, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's good to be doing this again with you 10 years after the last time we did it. Has anything changed? <laughs> I just want to say we were podcasting way before it was cool. Like I was like, oh, we're doing a podcast. And people were like, a what? Like no one was listening to him. No one was into him. I was like handing out iPods, trying to get people to listen to our podcast. Um, but now it's like, I feel like more people listen to podcasts than watch TV. It's like such a thing. Yeah, if you live in L.A., everybody has a podcast. So you say you have a podcast, everyone's like, yeah, so do I. So it's not cool anymore. <laughs> we were ahead of our time. I still think it's a great idea. I think Nine Thumbs was a great idea for a show. Uh, we just, we, we weren't quite ready for that. Or maybe the world wasn't quite ready for that. I don't know if the world was. The idea of our podcast was, was called Nine Thumbs. And it was because there were three hosts and each of us got three likes. And so we talked about like apps. We talked about like our favorite microwavable desserts. We talked about our favorite movies. It was just like anything that you liked and you were into that week. That's what we talked about. And I learned so much about the world um, with that. And so um, it's good to have you here. It makes me wish Matthew was here and Joy. Uh, if you guys ever listen to this, shout out to you both. You're amazing and you should come on this episode. But Jason, I know a lot's happened in the last 10 years. So are you like someone in L.A.? Have you started a podcast or are you, you doing other things? Like, what have you been up to? I, I have started a podcast. I've started a magazine. I've written a bunch of books. So that's it. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. I, I live in Amarillo, Texas. Amarillo is my home base. And I've decided to invest most of what I'm doing in the place where I live. And so my podcast is called Hey Amarillo. I launched it in 2017. And it is a weekly interview show with interesting people who live here. I uh, started it as an experiment because I didn't really know anybody doing a hyper-local podcast. Everybody wants to have millions of listeners all over the world. I wanted to have, you know, 10,000 in a, a city of 200,000. And uh, it's been really successful. Like uh, people want to be on the show. People know what's happening uh, on the show. People recognize me because they've heard my voice so often. Um, that's a fun thing that I do. And it's 250 episodes in. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Weekly episodes. We are a tiny, tiny baby podcast compared to you. Yeah. It seems like a lot. Um, and it, it goes pretty fast doing it that way. But I also, uh, over the past year, launched a magazine uh, devoted to Amarillo, Texas. It's called Brick and Elm. And it is a bi-monthly lifestyle magazine, print magazine, digital components, and is uh, just kind of adding uh, something else to the media environment here. Uh, we're in one of those cities where local media is kind of dying and we're determined not to let that happen. And so that's that's what I do. The podcast is awesome. I live in Austin, Texas. And so um, I told Jason, I was like, we don't even have a podcast as good as Hamarillo in Austin. Maybe it's out there. And if you're in Austin listening and like, Rob, no, check out this podcast, please let me know. But I'm like... I agree. The hyper localized thing is still like it's being done more, but still not as much. And you're a front runner there. And so, Jason, I'm going to like link that podcast and link magazine uh, into the show notes. And so if you are a fan of Amarillo or a fan of Jason Boyette or just like good media, check those things out. I appreciate it. Well, today we are talking about a movie. Speaking of 2017, this is actually a 2016 movie. <laughs> called Arrival. Hold on. Did you just say, speaking of 2017, I'm going to talk about a 2016 movie? 
I did. That's how experts make the podcast <laughs> transitions. I would have done the exact same thing. I was like, well, I don't think Arrival happened in Amarillo. That Speaking would've... of alien invasions. <laughs> Although if aliens were going to land, I do think Amarillo is right up there of like top cities they would go to. We have a lot of space and we have a lot of weirdos and that's all you need. I'm going to restart this. So we're talking about Arrival. And um, here's the thing. Here's my opening question about Arrival. Is Arrival the most realistic alien invasion movie like, is this actually how it would go if aliens landed here? Is this the most realistic one that we have? That's what I thought watching this, but I was wondering if you guys had a similar impression. So, Jason, we'll start with you. What do you think about that question? Uh, I want to answer that in two parts. Um, number one, I appreciate about Arrival, when, when you start to think about evolution and how life has evolved on this planet and humans, you know, somehow have two legs and two arms and a head and a chin and a nose and somehow all the aliens from distant galaxies also have the same body structure. You know, they maybe they have a weird head, but they've got a couple of arms and they walk around with legs. And I've always just thought that's weird. That's that's not something if, if evolution has as much randomness attached to it uh, as we believe it does, then why do any aliens look at all like humans just in basic sure. shape? Uh, and so I, I think that's significant that these don't. And that the way they communicate don't, it's not a language that you can just listen to. And it has the same structure as human language. Uh, and so I, I think that that's an important part of this story is that the aliens are different and, and not, um, not human-like in a lot of ways. And then I think the other thing about this is it's, it's a very quiet movie. Um, there's a lot of stillness in the film. And we think about alien invasion or the arrival of ships and stuff like that. And we just think of worldwide chaos and fires and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and maybe that's part of that. We get the perspective of the American set, you know, the, the Montana set uh, spaceship, which is not over a, an urban area. Uh, you see some of the flashes toward other parts of the world and you see people running and screaming in Pakistan or, or something like that. But I think because of the rural setting and the way that the government was able to block everything off, uh, there's not a crowd of people. And so you don't get the mass chaos, the rioting. Uh, there are mentions of it, but it's not part of this film. And I, I think that feels different. Uh, and, and maybe that feels realistic. You know, the, the part I think about is the kids being in the classroom uh, at the very beginning and all their cell phones start going off. Uh, yeah. and, and that's I mean, that's probably what would happen. We would find out about it on Twitter or somebody would text us about it. And so I, I think those elements of it make do make it feel more realistic uh, that the, the quietness and the randomness, the, the, the oddness of the aliens, I think, is is a departure. That opening scene where she is trying to teach her class and no one's in the class to start off with. And then they all start getting like the text and, and everything. Both times I've watched this movie now, that was so um, reminiscent to me of the day 9-11 happened. I was in eighth grade and I remember like I was just walking to class, right? I was still a student. I was walking to class and then suddenly like the whole day just fell apart, right? And like TVs are going on. And you're not going to class anymore. And like no one knows how to handle it. I remember like both times watching this movie being like this. Oh, this is I've been here before and this is an alien invasion movie. So I do think that the filmmakers do a really good job of like grounding human reaction to this in a way that isn't an action movie. Um, and you're right. It is like kind of a more quiet or it picks the perspectives in this movie that are more quiet, which is kind of fascinating. Um, I think if there was ever a benevolent 
alien landing as this movie is presented. I think the question is whether or not that is true. And that's what the, and I think that's what the movie is positing, right? Is that um, why do we assume that the aliens are here to attack us? Um, I think there's a part of me that says they might be. Um, so as long as they weren't here to attack us, I think this is probably how we would respond. I just feel like there's so many details that are like, this is how it would be. Even there's like a cult that like sets fire to a place and they freak out because of it. And there's all different governments. It's like, oh, we think kind of Independence Day where everyone unites. But the truth is there's all sorts of different governments and different bureaucracies of how they have to handle it. There's the media and how they're covering it and different media, how it's covering it. There's military protocol that's going through it. And so like all of the, the tapestry of humanity coming against this force is really explored in a way that's like feels right to me and thoughtful. I actually made two lists for this question. Wait, wait, you made some lists? Yeah, I, I made some lists. As I thought about this, there's two type of alien invasion movies. The first type is aliens as a metaphor for war. And so that is like Independence Day, War of the Worlds, Signs, Edge of Tomorrow, Predator, you know, like I would say 70% of alien movies are like they're coming and they're coming to kill us. Yeah, it's like a sci-fi action movie. Yeah, which really doesn't make sense if they're traveling all this way just to like kill us and take over the planet. Like, but that's kind of what most alien movies are, right? And then there's a second list, which I call peaceful aliens. And that list is contact, arrival, E.T., close encounters of the third kind and the abyss. There's other movies on it, but those are kind of the top ones that came to mind. And so it's kind of interesting that those are the two type of alien invasion movies that we have. And I think in all of those cases, aliens are a metaphor. You think it's an alien movie, but the movie is really about people. And it's about how we respond and how we come together to fight them or how we learn from them or how, in this case, they they give us tools to help us. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that is so interesting to me about this movie is you think it's about extraterrestrials. You think it's about first contact. You think it's about aliens, but it's about humans and it's about emotions and language and memory and all of those things that make, uh, that make up a life. And I always appreciate, you know, the, the use of a strong metaphor. This is an alien movie uh, to, to teach us something about humanity. And I, I feel like that's a, that's a big theme going through this one. Movies generally hold a mirror up, good ones at least, hold a mirror up to us in some way. And a lot of the times it's holding a mirror up to specific elements of our culture or our lives. And it's using parts of our culture to reflect like other things. But when you have an alien movie, you're holding a mirror up to like humanity by using something so outside it. Um, And so this idea of how do we respond as human beings on a broad scope like, what is human nature? It's a really interesting way to hold that mirror up by setting something out so, like, completely outside of the nature of humanity. Right. Like, most stories are how does a person respond? Like, how, how would you a respond? Single person? Yeah. If you were if you were lost in the forest, how would you respond? If someone broke into your house, how would you respond? If your wife cheated on you, like most movies are like that sort of story. Alien invasion movies, at least good ones, are like yeah, there's that individual story, but it's also like how do we all respond? Um, as people overall, like what would happen? I remember when COVID lockdown hit, mm-hmm. the very first movie that I watched like that night was like War of the Worlds, the Steven Spielberg 2005 movie, I think. And yeah. dude, it freaked me out. They're like in Tim Robbins's basement and he's like crazy and it's little Dakota Fanning and it's Tom Cruise just like wild eyed. And I was like, this is where we're going, man. This is what's going to it was not a good movie to watch when like the world felt like it was falling apart. But I do think these are helpful stories to help process like 
not what happens when something happens to Rob, but what happens when all of humanity is faced with something and how do we interact with it? I'm just laughing at the description of Tom Cruise as wild-eyed because that's just like normal Tom Cruise, right? <laughs> no, I guess so. Both like calm, thoughtful Tom Cruise. He's like, no, <laughs> thoughtful Tom yeah, Cruise. That's that's how people pitch elevator movies now. It's Tom Cruise, but thoughtful. <laughs> Go. Here's money. Okay, so I texted Jason Boyette and said, man, you've got to come on our podcast. I love talking to you. You're such a thoughtful guy. What movies do you want to cover? And you picked like two or three, but this is the one that jumped out to me. And so my question for you, Jason, is like, in all movies in human history, why is this one of the ones that just jumped out to you of like, this would be an interesting one and one worth talking about? Uh, a few reasons. Number one, when I first saw this movie, uh, it was in a theater right after it came out and visually it was stunning. Orally, it was stunning. Just, just the quietness of the film. It, it's one of those movies that ends on such an emotional note that, you know, you leave the movie thinking about it. And I, that's what I appreciate. There are a lot of movies that you watch and it's just bang, 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 loud explosions and you leave it and you forget it immediately. And this one I have never forgotten about. In fact, I was talking to my wife. We watched it together a couple of nights ago. And she said, make sure you mention on this podcast that I have seen this film three times and I have wept every time I've watched this film, even Absolutely. knowing what's going to happen. And so the emotional impact of the film, I think, is an important one to talk about. But I, I think beyond those things, what I love is I'm a words guy. I'm a writer. I'm a communicator. And this is an alien movie that's about language. And I love that. I, I think that. It's such an interesting way to twist a very familiar type of movie, but for it to be about something that doesn't get filmed very often. And it's how people communicate and, and the impact of language on the way that we experience the world, the way that we relate to each other, uh, the way that we uh, experience ourselves. Um, in fact, after I watched Arrival the first time, I went back and I read the source material, which is the story of your life by Ted Chang, a science fiction writer, a very oh, cerebral. It's a fantastic story. Um, and the movie, it, it, like, like you read it and you almost think this story is unfilmable because it's about how Louise figures out this language. And so there's so much math. There's so much graphic depictions of what the, the, the words look like or the language looks like. And, and so it doesn't feel like something you can make into a, a visual product. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it is a visual product and it's, it's one that stays pretty close to the source material. Uh, and, and so I, I love that fact that, that it's, it's a movie that you leave not only thinking about life and thinking about death and having all this emotion and thinking about how cool stuff looked, but it's about communication and language. And I, uh, it's something that has stuck with me with every viewing of the film. That's incredible. Uh, Andrew, how'd you feel watching this? Okay, here we go. Here comes Andrew. So I remember going into the theaters the first time to see this. I was watching it with my wife and her family. And I had heard all this great things like you got to see Arrival, you got to see Arrival. I'd seen the trailer. It had this cool alien spaceship. It looks like half of a giant black Easter egg. And I was like, yeah, like, let's go see this alien movie. And I remember walking out of the theater being like, I do not understand why everyone is freaking out about this movie. It was aggressively fine. <laughs> like, it, I didn't I didn't dislike it. <laughs> aggressively fine. That's an incredible description. Aggressively fine. Like, like, <laughs> you I don't see that on movie it. posters. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. And it always like pops up on like film blogs and stuff. And so I was really excited to jump in and watch it again for this podcast because I was like, I know I'm missing something about this movie. And uh, so I watched it again and my opinion didn't change. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I feel like every element of this movie is incredible, and I feel that as I'm watching it. The score is incredible. The cinematography is incredible. The directing is great. Everyone is acting their pants off. Like, it is, technically, it is great on every level, and for some reason, I just do not resonate with the story, like, emotionally, and... I think that's a me problem, and so I want to like talk to you guys today about this m movie, and I'm here to learn because I know that I'm just like missing something. Let me say, here's what I think you're missing. I think you're right that it's it's a me problem. Obviously, the problem is you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> we, we all but, agree. But the the element of it that is a reason it has stayed with me is completely external to the movie. It's the fact that I'm a dad, and that I'm a husband, and that I'm a child, and I watch that movie. And it makes me think about the relationships in my life. And I've, I've watched it three different times. The, the first time was in the theater and it was with my wife. Our kids were young. And so we resonated with Louise, played by Amy Adams, um, and, and how she dealt with her child's life. And, and would you make the same decisions if you knew the future, if you knew the suffering that your child was going to go through? Mm -hmm. And so seeing it as a parent, like had that emotional component. Next time I watched it was with my kids because I was like, you guys have to watch this movie. They were, you know, older teenagers at the time. Um, They're into psychology and language and all those kinds of things. And so watching it through their eyes made me feel a whole bunch of other feelings. Ooh. And then this most recent time I watched it uh, was after going through a year in which my dad had terminal cancer and he died in December. And so I went through that entire journey with him. And, and so you're, you're resonating again with this, would I go through all this suffering? Would I go through all of these experiences if I knew they were coming? Would I make that choice again? You know, if, if you know what's happening, can you keep it from happening or do you just accept it and learn to live with the reality of death? And all those things, like that's all external to what's in the movie. Sure. But I watch it and it makes me feel all those things. It makes me yeah. think all those things. And it makes me think about those things like months from now. And so that's the power of it to me is the questions it makes me ask. Yeah. And good movies do that. I mean, that's the point of a good story is to grab onto something that you feel and sort of paint that mirrored picture for you to kind of process it, you know? Jason, I think you're hitting on something really important that is important to me in this podcast, which is every time you watch a movie, you bring a different you to that experience. And every single time you can see a different film. And this is definitely a film that rewards a rewatch because once you realize like what the twist is, and by the way, uh, if you're listening to this right now, I feel like I need to say this every episode, but if you're listening and haven't seen Arrival for some reason and just love the sound of my voice and hearing me talk, <laughs> I get that. I have an awesome voice, but I would recommend like watching this movie first because we're going to spoil the heck out of it. Um, but it's definitely like a movie that you realize like, oh, what I thought I was watching is something totally different by the end. And so when, sure. you real, when you go back and re-see the same events, like you're realizing like, oh, I was watching a different film. And when we did the Truman Show podcast, and I was talking about once you know the shtick, to me, it kind of lost some of it, some of its value. This, you're absolutely right. Knowing what was going on with the, quote, memory sequences um, this time around made the movie better, I, I think, the second time. It's fun that it was a surprise the first time, but watching it all unfold, intercut as it is, and knowing what's happening to Amy Adams as her perspective on time is changing is really rewarding. Yeah, it's definitely one of those movies that has a twist ending that you need to go back and rewatch because it adds extra depth to it, I think, with the second viewing. For sure. Absolutely. There's so many layers. I mean, I think the other main meaning of this movie is about communication itself. 
But mm-hmm. what does it mean to communicate with something that's totally different than you? Like, this is going to sound weird, but I thought about my dog a lot watching this movie. And, like, we have this dog and we have it. And it's, like, such a part of our family. But, the, like, the way that I communicate with my dog is, like, totally different. The the gestures, the sound of my voice, like, the tools that I have in my communication toolbox with anything else in the world that's not a human being is totally different. And what it means to communicate with another life is totally different. And that's a big kind of idea. And what are we trying to accomplish in communication itself is a big idea. I think about that all the time. I mean, because I'm a writer, because I'm a podcaster, because my my job is communication, like the depiction of how important language is and how we experience the world in this film uh, is, is something that has stuck with me. And, you know, Louise is talking about, you know, the way that, that she starts the conversation with the aliens. You know, uh, the, the character of Ian, the physicist, he wants to start giving them algebra and, and throwing math equations at him and physics. And, and she says, we need to just start with language. We need to say hello first. And, and that's, you know, one of the first things she starts to do. And, and so you start to see that the way that language shapes how we experience the world um, that's, that's a conversation that is not often had, at least where I am, and definitely not in the film. And, and you see that when they're talking about how the Chinese are, are using Mahjong tiles to communicate with the aliens. And if you do that, their relationship to reality is going to be based on uh, conflict and competition and winning and losing. And, and every idea is expressed through victory or defeat. And uh, that, that it's important to take another approach, an empathetic approach, an approach where uh, you start to identify with the aliens. And as, as someone who just communicates for a living, like all of that resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that scene, there are several scenes where she's talking about language specifically, the one where she sort of breaks down the sentence, you know, and it says like, right, if we're going right. to ask this sentence, then we need to make sure that they understand what this word means. And we need to make sure that they understand the connotation of this word. Um, the kangaroo scene and then the mahjong thing, right? If all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail that you only view the world through the paradigm that you're presented with. And that doesn't allow you outside yourself. Um, Rob, for you, as you're walking through or watching through the movie, what was the scene that sort of jumped out to you? Uh, was there one that kind of connected you to the movie or something that was the most resonant? So I was going to talk about that scene where they break down the sentence because I think that's really core to what it is. But I actually have a question about how time works in this movie. I'm a big time travel guy. love kind of the philosophy of time travel. And so there's a scene where it's um, her daughter comes down the stairs and she's like, hey, what's the word for like nobody wins? And she's like, oh, like compromise. And she's like, no, it's something a little bit more sciencey than that. And then it like intercuts with them like talking with the like military guys and they say non-zero sum game and then all of a sudden it cuts back to her with her daughter and she's like oh it's non-zero sum game and she's like oh thank you and then she goes back upstairs and the implication that i got was like in real time she is accessing memories of the past or the future so it's actually like she can make choices like she does have a choice and that, i think that's one of my big questions is is she seeing all her life like in a mountain range, like Kurt Vonnegut talks about this of like time is like a mountain range and you can see the past and you can see the future, but you can't make any choice. It's just kind of like laid out like there. And so the very last scene in the movie, she, like Jeremy Renner says, hey, do you want to make a baby? And she like smiles, even though, but there's a choice there. And so that's my big question is like, does she have choice or is she seeing the past and future or specifically the future as something that like, oh, this happened anyway, but you don't have choice. I, I think she's seeing the future and understands that because this is the future, 
that that future means it cannot be changed, but she's already experiencing part of it. And that's where I think maybe reading the source material, I get confused between the, the story and the film, but, but like one of the things that it, it talks about is how, because the written language of the aliens doesn't have a backward or doesn't have a forward direction. It doesn't have a backward direction. It's, it's nonlinear. Um, the train of thought as you're using that language doesn't have a direction. And so what you start with and, and what you conclude with are, are sort of interchangeable. And that's why Louise starts to think in that language, at least in the story. And that allows her to see time in the same way in which she is experiencing the future at the same time she's experienced the present at the same time she's experiencing the past. And, and so I, I believe that it means she is experiencing the future also while she's experiencing the present and she's able to still choose that future. Um, and, and that throws in, you know, all the, the conversations about free will and determinism and, and all those things that are, that are fun to think about with time travel. Right. And that's what I th- like. I'm like, this is not back to the future where it's like, hey, you have this choice. And if you don't do it, you'll never be born. So you have to set things right. And this is more like, hey, your life is a river. And like looking at the future is really the same as looking at the past is how it. And, and I think it's an important theme in the movie because like. Garth Brooks' The Dance is like a song that I thought about the first time that I watched this movie was like, <laughs> you know, like, which I'm kind of agnostic. I don't know why that wasn't the opening music, <laughs> know, you know, should, instead of the real sad music. Let's know, just get I some should, Garth Brooks on there, right? I should have put some, you know, Garth Brooks, you know, but like, I, I could have missed the pain, but I'd have to miss the dance. Like, I freaking love that song. I think it's so good. And it's just like this sort of idea of like, hey, if you knew that like your relationship was going to end badly or like you would lose, you know, a kid to cancer, which is the most like devastating thought. Like, would you still have that kid? A really interesting philosophical question, but she's not making that choice in the movie. Correct. She like, she just knows this is what happened and that's happening anyway. So I think that is the tension that the movie is presenting. Uh, I watched uh, a clip of a um, interview with Eric Heiser, who's the screenwriter for this thing. And he was talking about the short story, which I I haven't read. So, Jason, you can fact check me on this. Um, but he was talking about how the short story really is mostly about determinism, that it focused on this. What's going to happen is going to happen, that like everything is kind of laid out and life is ultimately determined cause and effect is just going to roll out the way it is. And Eric Heiser, the screenwriter for Arrival, was kind of not interested in that and thought that that was a bleak view of life. And so he really dialed down on that and made it something that she had to choose and basically presents the story with that paradox and that the choice to have the kid is something that is um, not necessarily unique to the movie, but something that they focus on in a different way. So he was saying that that is her choice while understanding that within this world of knowing front to back how time works, that that is, in fact, a paradox. Um, so it's it's this kind of conflict of uh, determinism and free will and choice in the story itself butting up against each other. And I, th- I think what's even more interesting is the choice that he made as a filmmaker, because in the film, the daughter dies of cancer which is something that we do not have control over. Like you can't choose not to get cancer. In the story, she dies in a rock climbing accident, which seems like something that Louise could have warned her about or said, don't go on this trip. And so it it adds an even deeper layer of determinism. Like that's a Mm. very controllable thing, not to fall off a mountain uh, when, when you're rock climbing, when you compare it to uh, a terminal sickness. Yeah, I think think what's so interesting is like, 
I always took this movie as like she has a choice. And so I always took what was so poignant about this movie is when he says, hey, do you want to make a baby? Or even they're standing and watching the alien ship leave. And he's like, I thought the most beautiful thing I would see is aliens. But the most beautiful thing I saw was you. It was it was a little bit of a cheesy line, but it kind of worked. But anyway, and there's that moment. And but all those moments, she's like, hey, I'm choosing you, even though I know this is going to end in divorce. I'm choosing to have a kid, even though I know it's going to end in death. Like I'm choosing something because I think it's worth it. And I thought it was so poignant. But this time watching it, there was one scene that made me question that. The scene that made me question it is she goes with her daughter and she says, hey, is daddy mad at me or is where's daddy at? Why isn't he here? And then she says, well, I told daddy something and it was too much for him. And that's why he left because, you know, and we know what that is, which is you're going to die someday. And so she tells her dad that and then he knows that she's going to leave. Well, if she has a choice and knows how everything would go, why would she not like go back or go to the future or warn herself or redo it? To where it's like, oh, I shouldn't tell my husband this bit of information that's going to make our marriage unravel. I'm going to just let him discover it. Like, why doesn't she go and, like, fix that thing? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think at some point there is a breakdown in how we can understand as human beings because we are linear. We are not a heptopod. Right. Um, And so even in the film itself, like there is some version of a breakdown of that. And a lot of stories try and kind of present that to us. So like Watchmen with uh, Dr. Manhattan, he is theoretically in all time, all at the same time. And that's something that we can't necessarily like if you were in all times at the same time, you would just be watching your own life. Right. Like it's impossible for that to be a thing without it being deterministic. But we feel as though we're making choices. So I think there is a constant like paradox and conflict there. And so I think I think you see that in some scenes. It does seem like she has a choice. And then in other scenes, it seems like she's on rails and her life is going the way it is. I think it's interesting when um, right after that scene, she's talking to Jeremy Renner. He's getting her in the Humvee in like, quote, present day. And she's like almost just fainted. And he says, are you OK? And she says, I just found out why my husband left me and she uses the past tense for something that at this point she recognizes is in the future i think because and that that ties into non-linear nature of, right. of the directions of her thoughts right she's already been inside the alien ship and is like fully aware of what she is now capable of um and so the fact that she phrases that in the past tense maybe just to keep the audience thrown off a little bit but to me it was very telling of like her new relationship to time is that she says something that she knows is chronologically in, in the future, but to her, it is a memory. Andrew, you know what you sound like? What? You sound like someone who really loves this movie and is just not <laughs> willing to admit it. Like, that. okay, so, so I you're think deep. That, what, what I was saying is, I think this movie is technically fantastic at every level, but. I, I don't like emotionally enjoy it. You're like not one laser. I sat through two hours of an alien movie. So here's the thing. I watch an alien movie. I kind of want an alien to get punched in the face and welcome to Earth. You do not. <laughs> I do a little bit. Jason, I, I just filibustered. I took us down the deep end. But I think that's what's great about this movie is like it lets us ask these sort of questions. But did you have a most meaningful scene? I, I think the scene with... The general and China at the end where it starts to come together mm-hmm. yeah. is one of deep meaning because it's it's one of the first ones that takes you out of the proximity of the spaceship. It takes yep. you out of the present day that doesn't feel like a flashback or anything like it feels so different because it's at this glamorous event 
and you see that she's talking about things. And so it's, it's so stark the way that it comes together. And it's also the way that she begins to figure out how it works, this easy transition from the past to the present to the future. And you have the two of them talking to each other and you've got the cell phone and whispering. And, and I still like, I've read the book and I still don't really understand what was happening in that part uh, where she's getting the communication that she needs to communicate to him in the past in order to make the present happen and the future happen and to keep everything from falling apart. But to me, it's so pivotal because that's where uh, the meaning changes and you realize this is what's happening. Yeah. In that scene, he actually says, you know, there's a line that he says that like is like a secret line, but it's in whatever language. What what language is he speaking there, Jason? Do you remember? Is it Mandarin? I believe it's Mandarin. Yeah, I think it's Mandarin. And so what he says to her is something in Mandarin that they don't translate. But the line is in war, there are no winners, only widows is what he says. And that is from the story. That's directly from the story. And it's such an important line. It's interesting that they don't show that. Or maybe it's kind of cool that you have to go and figure it out, because I think that's part of like the heart of the movie, because this is also a movie about war and about our first instinct and first nature is to go and attack someone versus to try to understand. Yeah. Them. Is it a tool or a weapon? And, and everybody decides it's a weapon almost instinctively. OK, what about a uh, least meaningful scene? Andrew, well, do you got a least meaningful scene? A little bit. I've got two. And it I think that scene that Jason just talked about is the culmination of the the plot of the movie, maybe not certain story arcs, but certainly the plot. And I thought it was very odd to me that they did not, in fact, tell you what was said, because the whole theme, there's two themes. One is the I hope you dance theme of would you choose the pain even if you knew the journey, which and then there's a totally separate. Well, that's theme, not which, the Garth Brooks song, by the way. That's like a wait, who says oh, that? Oh, yeah. I oh, that that was like a Leanne Rhymes or something. Leanne Rhymes, that's what I'm wanting to say. <laughs> yeah, I blew that lyrical choice. Okay, so uh, I'm not from Texas, guys. I don't know my country music. <laughs> um, sorry. But the other idea of communication and how do we communicate in a way that we are putting ourselves in the other person's shoes? How do we get on the same page and not only view the world through our own paradigm? So the Chinese general there says, like, you knew the thing to tell me that would get me to understand you, basically. Like, you come and you're going to tell me the exact right thing. And to me, that is, like, where this whole movie is leading to of, like, how do we break the disconnection? There's that beautiful shot of all of the screens that is, like, disconnected, 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 disconnected. It's just, like, everyone is in their own pocket refusing to speak. And it's kind of like... They go to like, here is the answer, and then you don't hear it. They don't, I guess they don't tell you, which I guess is kind of cool-ish. But to me, it was kind of undercutting the point. Like, to, to me, the, the movie had been leading towards this thing of how do we get humanity to talk to one another? If this is a mirror for how do we empathize, what's the answer? And they just kind of like totally focused on the time loop paradox there and didn't say it. And I thought that was deeply unfortunate when you're watching that part of the movie. Yeah, you reminded me. And so in the spirit of of the film, I want to backtrack and take my answer back. Oh, perfect. Love it. Um, because I think, the, I think the most important scene, when you consider the themes and the overall point was at the very beginning when Louise and Ian were in the helicopter together, they're on their way at night, it's all dark, to see the the aliens for the first time. And he has her book and he's reading her book to her over the headset. And he says, quoting her book, language is the foundation of civilization. And then he says, no, you're wrong. The cornerstone of language is science. 
And so here's science talking, saying language is wrong. Here's Louise's belief that language is the cornerstone of civilization. And that's what we end up finding is that Louise was right. Yeah. With the general. Right. And here's my pushback to your criticism, Andrew, which is like, I don't think the point in the movie is like how to connect with other humans, really. I think the point in the movie is like there are things out there that if we like it's maybe an environmentalist movie in some sort of ways, like there are things out in the world that we don't understand that, that we just write off that can actually help us in a deeply profound way. You know, the whole reason that the aliens come is like, hey, in 3000 years or whatever the time is, you're going to be able to help us one day. And that's what it's going to be. So there's no like magic thing like that. He says, don't they kind of hint at what he says? Isn't it like something about his wife or his family or something? Isn't. Oh, so she tells him his wife's dying words. And that's just a way for him to like believe her. Right. Like when she's basically saying, like, I could see the future. Right. Like um, they need to give a believable way that a stranger would call him a world leader on the phone and he would completely change his whole mind. Right. So it doesn't really matter what his wife's dying words were. That's just like the key to him believing her, which I totally buy. But then it's that next bit, which I guess you translated, which the war has no winners, only widows. That's the thing that I guess even connects to like his wife's death um, to him. That's the thing that puts it in his paradigm that changes his mind which totally changes that scene for me, knowing what that is. And the movie didn't give it to me. <laughs> it's, su- it's such a great scene, though. It, the intercutting between, like, she's in this ball gown and then at a thing and he's, like, whispering to her and then they're, like, slamming on the door and they're aiming all these guns at her. And, like, it's, it's really great filmmaking, which I just want to talk about Denis Villeneuve uh, for a moment, he is one of my favorite filmmakers. Everything he's doing, man, is just awesome. Uh, he made this movie Enemy. He made this movie Prisoners, which is a movie that I deeply, deeply love. But it is not a rewatchable. It is like so devastating and awful, but really interesting. He made Sicario. He made Arrival. He made Blade Runner. Um, I, I'm literally not even reading the list. I'm just saying all these off the top of my head. And he like, just made Dune. And he made Dune, which is yeah. breathtaking. So... He's like his movies are so visual. They're so they are all a little cold, Andrew. Like, I do know what you're saying. There is this like distance or quietness or like Dune is very much a rival, right? Like, it's not like a loud sci fi, whatever else. It's much more a thinking man sci fi. And that's or thinking person for sure. Was was there uh, something that jumped out to you, Rob, is sort of like least meaningful? So. I just had two like little nitpicks. One was when Forrest Whitaker comes and says, hey, you need to come right now and do this. You can't come in. I I wonder like why she's so desperate to like be a communicator in the first place. Like that was something I wondered, like he doesn't talk to her about pay or what it's going to be or if it's going to be dangerous. She's just like, no, I have to do this. Yeah. Well, I think aliens who showed up on the planet. Wouldn't anybody want to like go see them? I think that's the thing. Like. This is like your shot to go be the person who talks to the aliens like it pay doesn't matter. Right. Like, I think I think that's the that's the hook. I thought that, too. I just thought she's not even asking questions or like, are they safe? You know, she's just like that just confused me a little bit. You know, for me, when when you think about taking you out of the movie, the, the part where she boards alone, the alien ship and, you know, ends up in this cloudy, foggy environment. But it feels like she's kind of underwater. The visual effects of her hair. Mm. were so distracting to me that I knew this was supposed to be an important pivotal scene as she starts to get it. 
but she's got this Medusa hair. I was just like, man, you guys should have spent some more time on these visual effects because now I'm thinking about visual effects and not what's happening. It kind of takes you out of it. It's just like cheesy alien land and everything else in that movie is so clean and beautiful and that that's kind of goofy. Yeah. I think my biggest least meaningful, Rob, you talked about earlier, and that was Jeremy Renner's line. I thought meeting aliens would be the best part, but the best part was meeting you. To me, that is something that I think kept me, not that line itself, but their relationship as becoming a romantic hinge point in the movie is something that I think kept me from maybe emotionally resonating with this movie. And maybe that's where I'm stuck at. I don't have kids, but I am married. And so my sort of deepest emotional relationship is a romantic one. And I think that they have little to no romantic chemistry in this movie at all. And so to believe that through this experience, they formed a marriage that then forms a child. I, I, I see them as being like colleagues and friends who trust one another, but they do not seem like in love in the least or even any budding chemistry at all. And so to me, this idea that this experience brought them together to like have a family, I don't buy that in a emotional sense at all. And so that ending where they're like in love, I'm like this, this feels forced. And it maybe keeps me from that emotional pivot that you guys have at the end of choosing the pain because it's great because I don't feel that relationship, which is the one that I think I would resonate with the most. And I think maybe that's a that's a flaw, a minor flaw in the film, that there wasn't really any affection shown between them or yeah. even flirtation or attraction. Yeah. Um, There's that until, one scene on like the truck where they're like sitting and talking about how, how yeah. they're moving, but they're still like close friends who are colleagues. They're like work buddies. Yeah. My assumption at the end was these two individuals have just gone through a moment of crisis, of deep emotional, physical crisis. And that's the kind of thing that makes a relationship deeper. Sure. And so I, I think I left it with the assumption this is where it starts because they had this intense bonding experience and it grows from there, sure. even though we'd not seen any hints of it going forward. You guys remember when I talked about wild eyed Tom Cruise, like remember way back in the podcast when I was talking about that? <laughs> oh, oh, I've yeah. never stopped thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who's the opposite of wild eyed Tom Cruise? Jeremy is Renner. Jeremy Renner, man. He's just kind of like there. I always want to like root for Jeremy Renner and like Jeremy Renner. And I don't think he's bad. But I can't think of a single Jeremy Renner, maybe Hurt Locker, I need to see it again. Maybe that's his one good movie. But even that, he's kind of shell-shocked, and that's, like, the point. But, like, he just doesn't sparkle. And I do think that's part of the, like, Amy Adams, man. I'm such a fan of hers. Every time, she's solid gold to me, um, whether it's Arrival or Enchanted or Catch Me If You Can. Any part, she just brings all of herself to it. And Jeremy Renner is just kind of there. And so I do think that's a valid point, Andrew. I think Jeremy Renner has like a deep broodingness. There, There is like an energy in his broodingness, but it doesn't necessarily sparkle. It's so funny that you just compared him to Tom Cruise. I don't know if you remember this, that way back in like 2012, Mission Impossible 4, they introduced Jeremy Renner in that movie as like the new Tom Cruise. And half of that movie is going in that direction. And Christopher McCurry, who was like the script doctor at the end of it, like got a hold of the script and he was like, no, Jeremy Renner's not the new Tom Cruise and completely flipped the things that Tom Cruise stayed the hero. Oh, yeah. It was like Jeremy Renner will never be there. He'll never be the hero. It, you know, and I think it was the right decision. I think for sure. I don't think he could have carried those movies. Do we all agree that Louise is the most meaningful character, that she's the central character in this? Oh, film? absolutely. Why is she the most meaningful character, Jason? Well, I'm going to give my perspective on this. Um, and this is coming. You have to understand I'm a religion writer. And so. I'm always thinking in those terms when it comes to my books and the stuff that I've written in that world. And I watched this movie and 
like the whole time I was just thinking Louise is a Christ figure. Like this was, this was the third time I watched it and it didn't occur to me until that one, but she's, she's a Messiah figure. It, and maybe you could make the argument that arrival is a Christmas movie. I know that's the argument about Die Hard and everything like that, but um, <laughs> you plug, plug for our the, Die Hard episode. Go ahead yeah, and scroll back say, to our first episode. Isn't that the question you always ask? Is this a Christmas movie? Um, that's the podcast, <laughs> but it's a movie about the incarnation because it's a human who is receiving a divine tool from a supernatural being and peace and goodwill among mankind is only achievable because of this supernatural gift. And Louise is a human conduit for that gift. Hmm. And she's got a whole future of pain and suffering that she has to choose to endure. Uh, and she endures it for the greater good. And I, I saw that, that David Rourke at RogerEbert.com talked about this uh, and, and thinking of it in terms of Christmas, the incarnation and the Christian story. And, and I don't think Ted Chang wrote it with this in mind, but like she is very much a part of that archetype. And I, I thought that was interesting. I didn't notice it till the third time through. Bro, that's an incredible take. I had never thought about that before, but I do think that's right. It's interesting. This movie was supposed to be titled The Story of Your Life. That's the name of the short story, right, Jason? Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to be called The Story of Your Life. And they're like, test audiences didn't really like it and they weren't sure. And so they went through a hundred different titles. And what they landed on is Arrival, which is a Christ figure sort of title to it. It is sort of this thing that's arriving on Earth to change everything. And so that's fascinating. Leave it to the weirdo religion guy to find that one. But yeah, once I saw it, I can't unsee it. No, that is fascinating and how like that can crop up even unintentionally, right? In so many different stories of how we keep as storytellers kind of drifting towards that hero in our minds. Yeah, I mean, half of the wild-eyed Tom Cruise characters are probably Christ figures too. It's so ingrained in the way that we tell stories that every hero story is going to turn into something with one of those elements, sure. I think. Uh, but this one happens to have all those elements. And, and I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it, it's very interesting to me. Normal Christ figures like, hey, you're the savior. You're going to save all your people, that sort of stuff. But that nuance of the Christ story, which is like, hey, you're going to save everyone, but it's at a great cost. You know that cost at the very beginning, but you're still going to go through with this. That is very unique to this movie. That's yeah, you have true. to you have to face the suffering and you know that suffering is coming um, and she doesn't really have a, uh, you know, Garden of Gethsemane, you know, will you take this cup for me sort of experience, but you have to imagine that that's understood that, that her entire life is is trying to figure out if she's willing to endure the pain that she knows is coming. I sort of took the opening and closing scene as the garden like she's it starts with her kind of looking out the window and she looks really sad. And then all of a sudden she's drinking she's wine. Dang, dude, I'm telling you, <laughs> drinking wine. She's looking sad. And then he comes up to her and she like lights up and smiles. And she's like, OK, I know what this means, but this is beautiful and this is worth it. And it is like, by the way, I love when movies start with voiceover and like talk about a whole sort of thing and story if they can nail it and do it right <laughs> so many times it's done wrong but this is just a great one where she sets up everything and you think she's saying something and then it, ha it flips it on its head at the end it's really really well done yeah the little clues that drop along the way to make you think certain things are like memories even like her mom on the phone calling her and saying like are you okay and she's like of course i'm not okay you you think that that's talking about the death of her daughter and then on a rewatch you're like no nah, it's talking about something completely different 
obviously Amy Adams' character of Louise is the central, like, motivating connection of the whole movie. But was there maybe a side character or someone that you found meaningful or up? So I almost put the daughter in this just because, like, she is what gives this movie meaning. She's what gives this movie depth and stakes. There's so many little things. Like, I love the shot where she's making... Uh, clay things and then they have that shot and then all of a sudden the camera pans over and it's like oh hey it's a heptapod right there like it's yeah. like so surprising and so um mommy and daddy talk to animals right mommy and daddy talk to animals you're like oh gosh that's what that means and so the daughter there the other thing that i wrote down for my most meaningful character is amy adams reactions <laughs> just that <laughs> that sort of idea of like she's thinking about something like that first time that she has a memory and she's like, what's happening to her? And you're thinking it's a memory. And then on rewatches, you realize like, oh no, she's seeing the future and you can actually see it in her performance. She's seeing the future and she's trying to make sense of like, what is this? And you think it's trauma, but what it actually is is confusion. And I just think it's such a phenomenal acting job where she's like, I don't even know if she was nominated for this or not, but uh, it was such a phenomenal acting job where you're thinking it's one thing, but actually her performance, when you watch it again, you're like, oh no, that does read as sort of like shock and awe and confusion of like, wait, who is this little girl? What does this mean? And it plays as both. Yeah. Which is incredible. I think my most meaningful character outside of Amy Adams, of course, is the CIA agent, Agent Halpert. I think Halperin, 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 sorry, it's not Jim Halpert, CIA uncle, though that would be great if this was in universe to the office, just (laughs) a good tie in. It would be much more interesting. (laughs) Maybe maybe you would have resonated more with it if it was uh, in the office universe. Can we send Dwight to go talk to the aliens and see what happens? (laughs) He had some theories. Okay, Agent Halpern. Yeah, well, I think. A lot of these like peace versus war movies, the like war people can be very like hawkish and a little bit oddly over the top. And I think both of the like strong military antagonists in this movie of that CIA agent, as well as the the guy who ends up going and bombing the aliens are sort of the two strongest is I don't think either one of them are presented as being like bad people. All of the CIA agents responses to things are ones that I fully resonated with and would have convinced me like Amy Adams response of like, stop being so cynical. I was like, I was on board with everything he said when he was like, Mm -hmm. maybe they're just trying to like drive us all apart to attack each other so that we would do that. And she was like, why would you even think that? And he's like, because that's what we've done for all of human history. Yeah. Right. Like she was like, why do you think they're here to invade? It's like, because that's what we did here in Montana where you're standing. Right. Like that's what living beings do. It's certainly what we do. So all of his assumptions of violence and everything weren't outlandish. He wasn't warmongering or like out for power. He was just very like defensive in what he believed was completely rational. Um, And I thought that because I agreed with what he was saying so much, the fact that the movie kind of pushes against that so hard. It was pretty uh, meaningful to me. And then the scene that the um, the soldier has when his wife is on the phone with him, like distraught because of what's going on. It's one of our few glimpses into the outside world. And he eventually like goes and bombs the alien ship. Like to me, again, I felt for him and I felt for what was going on there of them not knowing what was happening and the deep fear of what could happen, thinking that you have to go do the right thing, which is inevitably the wrong thing. Right. That's one thing I really appreciate is is that because, you know, the filmmaker has made such a quiet and still film, it feels like every scene has meaning. Like mm-hmm. everything is there very intentionally. There's no throwaway shots. There's no throwaway lines. 
Um, other than, you know, the, some of the weird special effects with her hair and stuff like everything <laughs> seems to have a really strong purpose in pushing the story forward. And, and the thing that made me realize this was when I was watching it again uh, in preparation for this podcast and, and thinking deeper about the themes. You know, there's there's a, a moment where Ian and Louise have just gotten into the spaceship and they're wearing their hazmat suits and they're trying to talk to the aliens. And she realizes, you know, talking about human as the word that they need to see their faces. And so she rips off her hazmat suit. Everybody freaks out. They think she's going to be exposed to radiation and all that stuff. And Ian is finally convinced to do the same. And he walks up to her preparing to take his suit off and he looks at her and he says, everybody dies. Right. And then he unzips. And I was just like, that's the whole theme of the movie. Everybody dies. Right. And he accepts it in that moment. And this just tiny little, Hmm. what seems like a throwaway line, like that's the entire theme right there. And you totally miss it if you're not like prepared for it and looking for it. And I, I really appreciated that in the filmmaking. Now, if Andrew was writing this movie, he would have said, hey, you look a lot better without a hazmat suit or something like that was a great moment. Exactly. <laughs> for romance, exactly. it was right there. <laughs> Jeremy Renner messed it up. Uh, a three-word <laughs> sentence, you know, oh, when, when you could have had a full paragraph of drama there. I uh, know. What were they thinking? I mean, that's, no, that's, it, that's the perfect time for romantic tension is right in front of a heptapod, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is a great scene. It's, it's really amazing. I love the canary as well. I just... Just wanted to talk about that for a moment where it's like most meaningful course, character canary yeah, yeah <laughs> just the canary i was literally like what a smart thing of like okay this canary's here and if it runs out of oxygen we do and that's the reason that she takes off her suit right because she knows like hey th- this canary is here totally fine this little innocent bird i'm gonna be okay too and it gives her the confidence and there's so many little details like that that just all work together that make it make sense and a clunkier filmmaker would have explained all that they would have sure. just had the character say, we have this canary because if the canary dies, we know it's unsafe. That's never even said. It's just assumed the audience will understand that. And if you think about that in reality, they would have had like a oxygen sensor or something, right? Like the military wouldn't have like put a bird in a bird cage and brought it in, right? Like they would have done. Um, I don't but- know, man. The military will do some crazy stuff to animals. Sure. <laughs> sure. No, but like in, in order to get around the having to have a whole dialogue scene about it, like, oh, here's the uh, equipment that's going to test the oxygen or whatever. Right. They give us a visual thing that we all know. We know what a canary in a coal mine is. Right. Right. We, we, right. we know that as long as the canary is like, like we, we understand that. And so, again, technically, this movie is pretty flawless, I would say. And that is just one example among dozens of how definitely Denis Villeneuve is creating this really, really technically great movie. Okay, well, let's get to the final argument, which is what is the meaning of this movie? What is it ultimately trying to say? Jason Boya, what is the meaning of Arrival? It's Ian taking off his suit and saying, everybody dies, right? And coming to accept the fact. The entire movie is about living with the reality of death, period. Oh, wow. That is that is deep. I think that this movie, in so much as it is about communication, is about in order to know someone else, you have to be vulnerable first. That there is no knowing of someone else without being known first. And that is what every country in the world, when I, that screen I was talking about where they're all looking at the disconnected, disconnected, disconnected. It's because no one is willing to share their information. They want everyone else's. They want all the information without sharing theirs because when they share theirs they are vulnerable and that is the key hurdle that all of the people in the movie 
can't overcome. In this sense, it's like a military version. We're not going to share our, our secrets because it would leave us open to attack. But I think in human communication, that is a thing that we all struggle with is I want to know what your intentions are and how you feel and what you want, but I am not going to share mine because as soon as I share what's in me, as soon as I open up and share myself, um, then I am vulnerable to attack. I have I am vulnerable to you when I share my stuff. And um, I think that is the kind of the core of communication and what they're talking about here is if we want to get along as people, we have to share, we have to be vulnerable and that that is scary, but ultimately the only way to do it. Those are good answers, fellas. Uh, and I think they're both right. I think for me, the meaning of the movie is when we th get married and we picture our life, we have a certain way, like when we're standing on our wedding day, we have a certain way of like, oh, we're going to have kids and we're going to go to the beach and we're going to do all this sort of stuff the way we see our life turning out. When we have a kid, we picture our way of our life turning out of like, oh, our kid's going to graduate and become president. And there's all these beautiful things. But the truth is, we're not guaranteed any of those beautiful things. The only thing we are ultimately guaranteed is pain and heartache because that's what comes with relationships and that sounds really depressing but what i love about this movie is it's optimistic is it's saying even the pain even the heartache even the hardest most difficult days are worth it because that's what it means to connect and that's what i love about this movie that's why it sticks with me that's probably why amy cried every time she watches it because it hits at that core human thing and it's really really powerful and i love that about arrival that just might have convinced me because that ties it all together. That ties together that everybody dies with the you have to be vulnerable. The movie felt disparate in its themes to me from the, the communication and the circularness of time. I didn't feel like they were in the same movie and that just tied it together. Huh. Well, they are all, all in the same movie. So go watch Arrival. This might be great, man. <laughs> go watch it again, Andrew. Go watch it again. Report back. Everyone else, I encourage you to watch it. Jason, great job today, man. Thanks for jumping on. Hey, thanks for having me on. This has been fun. I don't get to talk about movies enough. We'll have you back anytime. Yeah, you should do it more, Jason. You're a pro. Andrew, you're a pro too. Uh, and you all listening, thanks for checking us out. We will be back next time with another episode of The Meaning of the Movie. Oh.